0: Good morning. There are two categories of words for worship in Hebrew. The first is about body language. Body language that demonstrates uh, respect and submission. Psalm 99 uses a word from this category in verse 3 let them praise your great and awesome name and the hebrew root here is uh, literally uh, a word meaning to, to use your hands as in by extending them in worship it means this in verse 9 the psalmist urges people to exalt the lord our god and worship at his holy mountain. And the, the Hebrew root word here means to bow down. So these physical postures symbolically represent or express uh, faith in or one's allegiance to the God whose character is represented by his awesome name. In other words, we could paraphrase the psalmist as urging us, let them express allegiance to God's character and declare faith in God at his holy mountain. The second category of terms for worship in Hebrew, all about doing something, doing something that demonstrates obedience or sacrifice. Here, the psalmist focuses on keeping God's laws, his statutes and his decrees. So, Psalm 99 is showing us that worship is about uh, symbolic and practical actions that express a worldview and, and attitudes that are shaped by our allegiance to God. In other words, our worship is about our spirituality. That is, how we organise our, our head and our hearts and our hands into a way of living in the world. To worship God means following Jesus' call to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. It's Mark twelve thirty and 33. A church service of worship such as this is shaped by a, a, a liturgy That is a sequence of rituals used to to structure such a communal gathering uh, through which we express our allegiance to God's character and we publicly declare our faith in God with our heads and our hearts and our hands. Such communal acts of worship are both a, a source and embodiment of our common belief And so they have the power to to shape and to change our belief. Such liturgical worship is just one way of giving God an opportunity to shape us after the image of his son. One might say that the liturgy of a service, uh, including the sermon, is a communal subset ...of spiritual disciplines. As such, a liturgy should foster and support and express... ...the spiritual formation of the individual and the community. The growth in Christian faith, character and practice... ...that develops as Christ is formed in us. The Apostle Paul summarises these ideas in Romans 12, 1-2 where he describes worship as the the intelligent or the reasonable ongoing submission of our worldview and attitudes and actions to the will of God, such that we become transformed through relationship with God to progressively approximate his ultimate intention for us. This is a a lifelong project Of renovation. And that's God's main method of creating eternal goods out of the the transitory evils of this present world. Psalm 99 is what's known as an enthronement psalm because it poetically depicts God as enthroned. Between the angelic cherubim, God's footstool is at once uh, the Ark of the Covenant, or Jerusalem, or indeed the Earth itself is described sometimes as God's footstool. But here we have to face one of those hard questions that you could pursue further at the Alpha course. How can we worship God when his footstool is so full of evil and pain and suffering? How can we look at the news headlines filled with floods and hurricanes and terrorism and threats of nuclear war without wondering what it really means to say the Lord reigns? But you may be familiar with the following question about God, falsely attributed to the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus in David Hume's famous Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. And it goes like this About God, he asks, Is he willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Well, is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? This is a serious question. But the question must itself face up to serious questioning. The so-called problem of evil is an invitation to a dialogue one that can help us to better understand and worship God it isn't the conversation stopper that some would wish it was so how could we know that anything falls short of the way that things should be if there's no way that things are ideally meant to be And how could there be a way that things are ideally meant to be if there are no no ideals and no intentions behind our existence? C.S. Lewis put the question this way. He said, if nature, the space-time-matter system, if that's the only thing in existence then, of course, there could be no other source for our standards. They must, like everything else, be the unintended and meaningless outcome of blind natural forces. All that we say about nature, red in tooth and claw, is quite inexplicable on the theory that we are simply natural creatures. If this world is the only world, how did we come to find its laws either so dreadful or comic? If there is no straight line elsewhere, how did we discover that nature's line is crooked? And he concluded that the defiance of the good atheist hurled at an apparently ruthless and idiotic cosmos is really an unconscious homage to something in or behind that cosmos which he recognises as infinitely valuable and authoritative. For if mercy and justice were really only private whims of his own, He could not go on being indignant. The fact that he arraigns heaven itself for disregarding them means that at some level in his mind, he knows they are enthroned in a higher heaven still. well, The psalmist portrays God as the one whose great and awesome name or nature is holy and thus set apart from all created things, over which he rules as the mighty king. This is a description of divine power. But the psalmist doesn't portray God's power as some impersonal force of nature. Rather, God's power comes with a character. And that character is the character of one who is holy, who loves God, Justice, who has established equity, who does what is just and right in the affairs of Israel. God is a God of righteous law, who gives statutes and decrees to be obeyed, and who punishes the misdeeds of men, but he is also a forgiving God. The fact that God is holy, that he is pure, and righteous is surely a just foundation for praise I mean who could worship or honour a God who was not pure and holy so it seems that the reality of evil actually requires us to say that there is a good God but in the face of evil does it make sense to say that that good God is a Lord who reigns. If God were lacking in power, that might explain the existence of evil. And it would also remove any hope that evil could be defeated. According to atheist Sam Harris, for example, he says, if God exists, either he can do nothing to stop the most egregious calamities, or he doesn't care to. God, therefore, is either impotent or evil. But like him before him, Harris poses a false dilemma. There is no explicit contradiction between the statements God exists and evil exists. As there is between the statements God exists and God does not exist. Those are obviously contradictory. So as Keith Ward cautions, it's very important to distinguish a, a cry of agony in the face of what we can't comprehend from the recognition of a contradiction at the heart of belief in God. The noted atheist philosopher J.L. Mackey, who was a required reading when I was in my undergraduate days, tried to bring out the assumed contradiction between God and evil by saying that any God worthy of the name must be able to prevent evil and must want to prevent evil regardless of the circumstances. And he wrote, it's true that there is no explicit contradiction between the statements that there is an omnipotent and holy good God and that there is evil. But if we add the at least initially plausible promises that, that good is opposed to evil in such a way that a being who is wholly good would eliminate evil as far as he can and that there are no limits to what an omnipotent being can do then we have a contradiction a wholly good omnipotent being would eliminate evil completely so if there really are evils and surely there really are then there cannot be such a being but it it just isn't necessarily true that even a good being always eliminates evil as far as it can at any given time, regardless of the circumstances. I mean, a good dentist just is one who will cause you some pain now in the present by drilling your teeth in order that you avoid the greater evil of losing your teeth In the future. Indeed, a good person who was omniscient, who knew everything, might actually allow more evils than a good person who didn't know everything and is therefore ignorant of certain greater goods. It doesn't matter whether or not we can imagine what those greater goods might be only that their existence is possible. As Paul says in the reading we had from Romans, Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Who's known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? The fact, though, that good people don't necessarily abolish all the evil they can at any given time shows that it is possible for God to be good even if he doesn't abolish all the evil he can at any given time. And then again, philosophers have recognised that the claim that God can do absolutely anything as uh, Mackay put forward, well that's not really true either. Christians have always recognised that an omnipotent being cannot do lots of things. Even the Bible declares that God cannot lie. Or that God cannot swear by a being greater than himself. After all, he is the greatest possible being. More to the point, it's often been observed that even God cannot give creatures the freedom to choose between good and evil whilst also guaranteeing that none of us make any bad choices. So in the end, even Mackay acknowledged his failure to prove a contradiction between the existence of God and evil, writing, a holy good God would not, after all, eliminate evil as far as he could. And it may be argued that there are limits to what even an omnipotent being can do. For example, it would usually be said that God cannot do what's logically impossible, and this, we can agree, would be no real departure from omnipotence. And he admitted the problem of evil does not, after all, show that the central doctrines of theism are inconsistent with one another. Indeed, these days, philosophers of religion, whether they're theists or atheists or agnostics, have agreed that this version of the the problem of evil has been rebutted and is unsuccessful. Consider, for example, how, like the Apostle Paul in Romans, the agnostic philosopher Paul Draper sounds when he says this. It is possible that there is some good reason, perhaps a reason too complicated for humans to understand, for God to permit tragedies. So tragedies don't conclusively disprove God's existence. Now, miracles are by definition the exception rather than the rule. But if God were amoral or or evil, we'd expect to see this in the set of things that he's known to have done miraculously. And yet we don't see such a pattern. As the psalmist points out far from reflecting divine indifference or malignancy, the things that God is known to have done miraculously in history reflect his loving justice He talks about Moses and Aaron and Samuel calling upon the Lord and he answered them, he spoke to them from the pillar of crowd they kept his statutes and decrees, God answered them you were to Israel a forgiving God though you punished their misdeeds or as the footnote in your Bibles might well say you could translate that last verse there uh, though God was an avenger of the wrongs done to them. So the psalmist rejoices in recalling how Moses and Aaron and Samuel and so on act as intercessors between God and mankind. Well how much more Should we Christians rejoice now that Christ, the ultimate intercessor, who is himself both God and man, two natures in one person, has been revealed. Indeed, surely in the light of the life and the gruesome crucifixion and the glorious resurrection of Jesus, we Christians know that God suffers with us and for us that he gives eternal life to everyone who will respond to his self-sacrificial love for us and that consequently as Paul also says in Romans our present sufferings are not worth comparing with all the glory that will be revealed in us Alvin Plantinga, who was the foremost philosopher of religion in the 20th century and was this year's recipient of the Templeton Prize recently, had this to say about the problem of evil. So the existence of God is neither precluded nor rendered improbable by the existence of evil. Of course, suffering and misfortune may nonetheless constitute a problem for the theist. But the problem is not that his beliefs are, are logically or, or probabilistically incompatible. The theist may find a religious problem in evil. In the presence of his own suffering or that of someone near to him, he may find it difficult to maintain what he takes to be the proper attitude towards God. Faced with the great personal suffering or misfortune he may be tempted to rebel against God or even to give up belief in God altogether but this is a problem of a different dimension such a problem calls not for philosophical enlightenment but for pastoral care I think that integral to that pastoral care and indeed Part of God's response to the evils among us is that as a church we engage in an intentional diet of thoughtful worship through actions that express a worldview and attitudes shaped by an allegiance to the holy God who does indeed sit enthroned between the cherubim. Amen.